Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic cult and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. We have a very special guest tonight. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of one of the most entertaining films of all time, 1973's The Sting. And helping us celebrate a true and timeless Hollywood classic, which won Best Picture in its year, is its screenwriter, David S. Ward, who received an Oscar for a script. David's writing credits include Sleepless in Seattle, which he co-wrote with Nora Ephron, and Major League, which he also directed along with its sequel. Welcome, David. Thank you, Steve. I'm good to be here. So uh, I was going to ask you, um, did you grow up in a movie-going family? Were you a big movie-goer as a kid? Actually, no. My family was not not a big movie-going family. Uh, we did. We my my father, uh, you know, was an engineer, uh, and so there weren't a lot of us uh, going to the movies. Uh, I remember the the only movie I really remember from my childhood was. Um, Gosh, what was it? it Robert Wagner in um, Prince Valiant. Prince Valiant, nineteen fifties. Yeah, and uh, so well, I didn't. Well, you'll, really la- you'll to- laugh. You'll laugh, David, because my guest on next week's show is Robert Wagner. Really, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, remind him that he was in that, and uh, I saw him. <laughs> I saw him as a very young boy. So as a kid, you weren't going to Saturday matinees and hanging out? The not, not, not really. No, I was, uh, I was out playing baseball whenever I could. That was, that was my, my sort of childhood activity. Uh, so we did, I didn't come from a, a really art, uh, you know, film oriented family. Um, so I didn't really start to get interested in film until I was in college um, and never saw myself as being part of the film industry in any way uh, until the, uh, until the end of my senior year, I went to college as a, as a pre-med student. Uh, uh, then that was interrupted by uh, organic chemistry and uh <laughs> you know, I realized I wasn't going to be a pre-med. I wasn't going to be a doctor. And I sort of I sort of floundered around for two years after that, trying to figure out what it was that I really wanted to do. And when I was a senior, I, I made just for for fun. I made a small film with a friend of mine who was a photographer and I really enjoyed it. And I thought, maybe, you know, maybe I'll go to film school. So I applied to USC's film school with that film and I got in, uh, probably easier to get in back then than it is now, but, uh, I got in and, uh, you know, I just started to really start to feel that maybe I could do this. Maybe I, maybe I had some talent. I, I, I didn't really know, but, uh, I just knew that it was more fun than what I'd been doing up until then, uh, academically. Were some of your classmates people who I would recognize their names today? Um, the only classmate, well, there were people from 
Pomona, who became big in the entertainment business, not necessarily my classmates. Uh, Chris Christopherson was a graduate of Pomona. He was a Rhodes Scholar, went to Pomona, then went to Oxford, and obviously had a great career in both movies and music. Um, the only other person I know from when I was at Pomona that went into film was a, a writer named Jeffrey Fiskin, who wrote um, he wrote a film uh, called Cutter's Way, uh, which was not widely seen, but was a very, very good film and very well reviewed. And then went on later, he uh, he worked on Bosch um, on uh, on uh, cable television. Oh, it's a great series. I'm a big fan of Bosch. Yeah. So you are associated with, as I mentioned in the intro, one of the most entertaining movies of all time. And uh, uh, can you kind of tell, I, I know that from reading the research that you were researching another script at that time, uh, learning about a pickpocket because it was a character. Was it Steel Yard Blues you were working on? Steel Yard Blues, yes. Steel Yard Blues, which is... Uh, was not a widely seen movie. I pretty much thought my career was over after that. <laughs> Who's they even changed the, They even changed the title once. I, I forget what they called it, but whose who's uh, movie? Whose movie was that? Well, it was uh, Universal, and we had a great cast. We had Jane Fonda, Donald Sutherland, Peter Boyle, but this was right after both uh, Jane and Donald were in a group called Free the Army. It was actually the F word, the army. This was during uh, the, the end of the Vietnam War or right. toward the end. And uh, I don't think, you know, uh, uh, they the director was a very fine guy, a uh, very nice person who, uh, who founded the committee in San Francisco. But he had never directed a movie before. And he was a little in over his head and he had two big stars who were kind of not getting along at the time. And uh, so the movie, the movie did not turn out well, but while I was writing it, I, um, I had a sequence that I wanted to do with pickpockets and I read a book on grifters and the pickpockets were sort of at the lower end of the grifters, probably at the bottom end. And at the top end were these these confidence men. And I just happened to see a chapter on the confidence men and I read it and I thought, wow, these people are fascinating. They're like dramatists. They put on they put on plays to take to make greedy people give them their money. They're they're they don't have guns. They're not violent. They don't use any any force. They they tell the people that they're conning that what they're doing is illegal. And basically, they're just preying on the greed of some very wealthy people who want to make money easily. And I found that fascinating. I'd never seen anything about them. I thought it was a, you know, a very unique criminal subculture. And uh, I just decided this might make a really, really interesting movie. I've never seen any, a movie about these people. Now, at that time, you had done the Steel Yard Blues movie. Uh, were you, did you have chips on the table in Hollywood or were you not kind of going without a rudder? Did you have a decent agent? I had a decent agent. He was, he was, he, he was not with the big agency, but he really worked hard for me. His name was Stu Miller. He was at an agency called APA. They were, they were like, you know, fourth, fifth, 
sixth big agency, but uh, but you know, after Steel Yard Blues, I really didn't have I didn't have much momentum, and I I uh, when I decided that I was going to write the Sting, um, or going to write a movie about confidence men, I hadn't even come up with the title yet. Uh, the The title came from the fact that the Sting is the fifth uh, stage of a big con. Um, and I was, uh, you know, I was sort of hoping that this would get me back in the game because Steelyard Blues had been a big failure. I'd written a, a um, I'd written an adaptation of another book called Everybody Knows and Nobody Cares, which turned out to be an apt title. I wrote for, <laughs> I wrote it for, uh, <laughs> Um, uh, I wrote it for Larry Terman and uh, it never got made and so I was you know I wasn't I certainly wasn't a hot writer around Hollywood when uh, but I I had a serendipitous meeting I didn't even have an agent really well I had an agent but I had a serendipitous meeting with, with Tony Bill and um, now when you say serendipitous how would what do you mean well um, he was doing my my agent Stu Miller. Um, you know, Tony wasn't a big producer at the time. Stu just happened to uh, Stu knew that he was a young producer. He had a movie that he was trying to get distribution for called Deadhead Miles. Um, it was a movie about truck drivers, and uh, didn't get off the ground and. Somehow Stu ran into Tony at some at some function and said, "You know, I've got a I've got an idea from a young writer you might be interested in. I think maybe you should meet with him." And uh, <clears throat> so I met with Tony and I I told him, you know, I told him about these con men and what they did, and I'd sort of worked up a small pitch on it. Um, <clears throat> and Tony was really taken with it. And he said, you know, I'm I'm the serendipitous thing was that he was he was in discussions to do a movie with Redford about barnstorming pilots. Because Tony was is was an, is a pilot and has flown those kinds of planes, those uh, you know, those old biplanes. Right. And um he he wanted to you know, he was in the in the midst of developing the Great Waldo Pepper. And uh, so he said, you know, I, I know this guy, Robert Redford. And I said, yeah, I've heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I know of him. Uh, and Tony said, you know, why don't you make a... And at this time, Tony was starting to go into business with Michael and Julia Phillips. And Tony said, why don't you make it you know he had a little portable tape recorder and said why don't you you know just do the pitch into the tape recorder and i'm going up to see redford this weekend in sundance uh i don't even think it was called sundance yet but uh i'm going to take it up to him and see if he's interested and so i you know i had this tape recorder i did my little pitch into it and he took it up to Redford and Redford listened to it and said, God, this sounds like these people sound fascinating. Uh, when you've done the script, I'd, I'd, I'd like to be the first to see it if that's possible. And uh, Tony set up a meeting with, 
actually, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit. Redford was interested, and he set up a meeting between Redford and I at the Bel Air Hotel uh, out by the pool. And uh, I thought, okay, great, I'm going to meet Robert Redford. And uh, you know, I'd met I'd met a few I'd met a few people, you know, who were fairly big in the industry, but had never been able to get anything going and uh i met met redford by the pool and the first thing i was struck by was that he was the best looking male i've ever seen in my life <laughs> uh, i was just like this guy looks as good or better than he does in the movies that never happens he doesn't even have any makeup on him i mean he looks like he looks like a you know it's like god gave him all the good looks and the rest of us are just you know trying to pick up scraps here and there. <laughs> and so I was a little bit intimidated. He just like, I didn't expect him to be that, you know, to be, to be such a, uh, you know, such a movie star looking person. So sat down with him and, uh, you know, I had a conversation with him and we talked more about confidence men and some of the things that I had learned about them. And he was really, uh, he was really interested and said, look, when you have the script written, I'd like to see it first. I said, well, sure. I, don't worry. I'll, <laughs> I'll get it to you right away. So you basically, so, you, you weren't going to see any money. It was basically you writing on spec. Well, no, what happened was that Tony and Michael and Julia optioned the idea, Oh, um, which, you know, paid me like, 1500 bucks which i thought was a fortune at the time and um then i started writing the script and as soon as i was finished with it i showed it to them and they were very excited about it and then they sent it to redford and uh he was very excited about it and then he sent it to george hill and george hill got excited about it he sent it to, to paul newman and Newman got excited about it. I would, you know, I, a lot of this I didn't even know was happening. I was so far removed from the business. And it was happening so fast. This happened in a couple of weeks. Well, it's funny because there's a lot of notes on the Internet about various things that are happening. Rob Cohen claims that he found your script in a slush pile at Universal and passed it on to Mike Metavoy. Does that have any truth to it? It does, yes, because Mike Metavoy became involved in uh, trying to get the film made, trying to get the deal made, and he was involved with I forget I forget which of the which of the people he was involved with, but um, the uh, he was involved with it, and um, then Newman got it to Robert Shaw, and then. What happened with, I think, with Mike Metavoy was because uh, Tony and Michael and Julia didn't have any credits yet, uh, they went to Universal with it and got Zanuck and Brown uh, interested in it. And they were they were very big producers and and uh, had a deal with, with Universal. And once Zanuck and Brown uh, came in as exec producers, we, we really had a movie. Proving once again the adage that it takes a village to make a movie. Sometimes, yeah, it does. It really does. Particularly, you know, when 
when myself and Tony and Michael and Julia were just starting out and uh, we did not have a body of work to point to. Uh, Tony had been an actor, but as producers, we they didn't have a body of work to point to. And obviously, Zanuck and Brown did. So that was the last kind of push that we needed to get over the goal line. Well, you are known for uh, ha having a strong interest in history. Uh, you like to do a lot of good research. You mentioned earlier that you read some books about grifters. Uh, this was obviously pre-internet. You couldn't do a couple of clicks and have everything up on the screen. No, you had to go to the library. Did you did you uh, end up talking to anybody or did you get most of your information from books? I talked to some. I went to the LAPD Bunko Squad and I talked to I talked to a few con men that they put me on to that were no longer in the business. But this was this was late 60s. And the the heyday of confidence men was the late 30s and early 40s. And so. A lot of the people like uh, the Gondorf brothers and the and the others who were famous confidence men, um, they had heard of, but they had not necessarily worked with them or heard of them. I, or they heard of them, but they had not necessarily worked with them personally. So I did talk to some real confidence, uh, some real confidence men, and they had stories. They had great stories about what what happened back then, but I did a lot of research. I read every, I read every con book on confidence men I could uh, going back to the 1920s. Uh, the, you know, when this kind of confidence work really started. And uh, so I was, you know, and <laughs> I got sued by six different people who wrote books about confidence men when the movie came out and was a hit. I got sued by a guy who'd, who'd never even seen the movie. <laughs> is is that uh, David Moore, the author of? That? No, David Moore was a David Moore was a guy who was a a guy who wrote a nonfiction book about confidence men, and he had a lot of argo that uh, you know a lot of the language the confidence men spoke. Although his book was basically. Uh, based a lot on this guy Sutherland's book who wrote in the late 1920s. And, but he, you know, he laid out the various steps of a con, but he didn't have, he didn't have a, a, a con story. There were no characters in his book. Uh, what he sued me for actually was copyright infringement, which meant that not that I had taken the story from him, but that I could only have known about confidence men if I'd read his book, what I knew about confidence men if I read his book. And unfortunately, some stringer at New York Magazine found that found that out and it became kind of a kind of a cost celeb and it, it caused me it caused me some some heartache because uh you know, some people were saying, oh, you didn't, this wasn't an original script. This you took from this from David Moore's book, which wasn't true. No, and uh, insulting your research skills. Yeah. And I, you know, I, but again, I was not, I was not somebody who I never, I didn't have a publicist. I've never had a publicist my whole career. So I really didn't know how to fight back against it. And also I didn't have errors and omissions insurance which all writers now have as a, a matter of course. And Universal 
said, look, you know, this is on you. So they made a settlement. They made a settlement with Moore rather than go to court because the movie had made so much money. It had made $128 million in 1972, 73, 73 and 74, which now would be close to $800 million. And so they said, hey, we're this is a nuisance suit. We're going to pay this guy to go away. And I said, no, 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 you can't do that. It makes me look like I'm guilty. He said, yeah, we can, because we're not, we, it's not even our money. So what happened was they made this, they made this, this deal. And fortunately, Redford and Newman, who knew the truth, came to my rescue. And so I didn't have to pay all this money. And, uh, you know, I'll be forever indebted to them for that. But, um, you know, then we went on and I went on and, you know, from time to time, there are people who, you know, who want to bring this up and try to discredit me. Uh, one of whom was the, uh, uh, the God, the, the magician. Um, David Blaine? Who, no, one of the. Oh, Ricky, a, Ricky J. Ricky J. Yeah. And he he was a friend of Moore's. And so this this became, you know, he went around and he called Wikipedia and told everyone it was a, an adaptation, not a, a uh, not an original script. And I had to I had to have my representatives call all of these people and say this is not true. The Academy, as a matter of fact, I had I went to the Academy and I said, look, I need you to investigate this. And and whatever whatever you come up with, I'll abide by. But I don't think this is fair. And the Academy investigated it and found that I had written an original screenplay. So, you know, they when the awards came around, I was and I had was lucky enough to win, which was a complete surprise to me because I didn't know anybody in the business. Um, that I you know they gave me best original screenplay. Well, uh, there's no question that it, it's a wonderfully marvelous original. Um, I was going to ask you, the story that made the big screens is set in the 1936. Now, were you always planning to set it in the 30s? I was, yes, because as I said, the the it was really, the confidence man really thrived during the Depression um, because people were looking to get Although the, the people that that, that the, the the elite confidence men preyed on were not people looking for money. They were people who already had money, but who were looking for more. And they they kind of preyed on their greed. They absolutely preyed on their greed because they told them, this is illegal, but you're going to make a lot of money. That's the only lie they ever told. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I found this sort of, intriguing that you know they were they were preying on the on the one percent who already had money but it wasn't it was never enough they wanted more and even if it was illegal they didn't care it was also good for the confidence men because if they tried to go to the police they would have to admit that they had they had cooperated in an illegal scheme and they they were warned that it was illegal so 
Well, Paul Newman uh, plays your lead, one of your leads, uh, Henry Gondorf. And yeah, uh, and that, using the name Gondorf was what got me in trouble with Moore because the Gondorf, the Gondorf brothers were real confidence men. And I used the name Gondorf because I thought, you know, if there's any of these confidence men around, they'll get a kick out of that. They'll get a kick out of me <laughs> using the name of a real confidence man, although I used the name Henry Gondorf. Well, if you well, had a, have had an errors and admissions guy working with you, he probably would have flagged that. He would have flagged that, yes, but I did not. I was I was young and uh, I, I just never thought to ask for that. I didn't even know what it was. Now, in one of the research sources, I read that in an original screenplay, Gondorf was kind of a schlumpy secondary character. And uh, I think when read, uh, when the script got to Paul Newman or before it got to Paul Newman, you had decided that you better augment the script. Is that correct? Actually, the, the character that was really different was not the Gondorf character, but the Hooker character. Oh. The, the Redford character was 19 years old in the original script. He was just kind of this young hustler. Um, he was a small con guy who, you know, did these little cons that you see at the beginning of the movie where he does the the switch where, you know, the, the mark winds up with a, uh, a, a, a handkerchief full of toilet paper. Oh, that, than that, the whole scene he with, thought he was going to get. With, with James um, Earl Jones's brother playing right, Luther. Right. And that, and that so, sequence was great. So, um, you know, I had to, when Redford became interested and in, I had to make the character older, rather than it being... You know the 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 relationship between Gondorf and Hooker being almost father son, it became more mentor student. Got it. Got it. And so that was that was the role I had to change. I also had to change uh, Lonigan a bit because he wasn't Irish in the original script. And uh, you know when when Robert Shaw came on, you know we wanted to use his Irish his his Irish qualities to to bring uh more to the character was one of your one is one of the early choices for Lonigan Richard Boone I heard that well it was funny because I when I wrote the script um I had in mind um I had Lee Van Cleef in mind for the Gondorf character Oh. And I had Richard Boone in mind for what the what the Lonigan character became. I was a little less clear about about Hooker, although um, you know I was I had tried to get Jim Morrison into because I knew Jim Morrison and uh, I met how, him. How did you know Jim? How did you? I met him in UCLA because oh. he. He hung around UCLA. He went to he went to film school there for I don't know a year or so. He and Ray Manzarek uh, were there a lot, and uh, so I met him there. And I was I just sort of struck up a kind of a casual friendship. I wasn't a I wasn't a close friend, but I wanted to, to cast him in uh, Steelyard Blues, and Warner Brothers said no. I don't think we can insure him. He's uh, he's had some drug problems and, you know, we're not we don't want to go and go there. And I was I was deeply disappointed because I think he would have been I think he would have been a very good actor and he really wanted to be. And he was, you know, 
I was obviously a very charismatic performer, and there have been a lot of performers who've gone on to be good actors. Sure, sure. Of uh, Julia Phillips, Michael Phillips, and Tony, who did you think, who did you work with the most on no, the notes for the script and making it what it was? Did anyone stand out? Well, Julia was, Julia was more kind of the notes person. Um, but they all, they all contributed. There was, and, and there weren't a lot of notes. I, I was really surprised. I was really surprised and it made me feel good that there weren't a lot because, you know, on my other movies, uh, you know, when I was working with Jane Fonda on, on, uh, on Steel Yard Blues, there were a lot of notes, a lot of notes. And uh, so, you know, when this happened and there weren't a lot of notes, I, I was, I was kind of pleasantly surprised. And so they pretty much, they were pretty much anxious to get it. Uh, you know, because they were talking to Medavoy and they were anxious to get it to Universal and see if, you know, how they felt about it. And they pretty much, they pretty much went with it without a bunch of notes. As a matter of fact, even when George Hill got involved with it, I didn't, there weren't a lot of notes. There was one scene in particular that I, I was, you know, he went over every scene in detail because he was very, very, he was a very conscientious director and um, he wanted to make sure he always told me that said, David, you never want to be in a position where the actors ask you a question you can't answer about their character, because if they see that, they start to lose confidence. So he went over every scene, every every line of dialogue in every scene, except for one scene. And I later asked him, why, uh, George, well, why didn't you? Why didn't you ever say anything about it? Why didn't we ever go over that scene? And George had sort of a dark sense of humor. And he just looked at me with that George Roy Hill look and said, I'm, I don't know, Dave, I just figured it was hopeless. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I didn't know whether to laugh. I didn't know whether to, you know. Do, 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 you, you, remember, do you remember what Are scene? Are you going to cut that scene? What? <laughs> do you remember what scene that was? It was a scene. I think it was the scene in the... I think it was the scene in the diner when Redford first meets. Um, oh, the girl. Uh, the girl, yeah. Uh, who who turns out to be the hit woman. Right, and what a great uh, reveal that is. Although we won't spoil it for anybody because there are people who are be watching this show who have not seen this thing and I will be hitting wow. them okay. over the head at the end to make sure they do watch all it. All right, all right. Um, so you finish the script. Uh, they start getting this cast together, this amazing cast. Um, it's universal. Universal at that time likes to shoot stuff on the lot, which was perfect. I do remember uh, interviewing when I was a writer for Cinefantastic magazine. I remember interviewing Albert Whitlock, the matte painter. And I think Albert Whit Whitlock was very active on, uh, on the sting because you have those panoramas of 1930s Chicago. Right behind the merry-go-round, which is was which was and still is in Santa Monica. Right. So he he created the whole city of Chicago behind the. Yeah, he was he was one of the all-time greats, Albert Whitlock. The the thing that's so wonderful about the movie, and this is this is unusual because sometimes when you have a big ensemble, and of course with 
the, uh, with uh, the Gondorf gang, you have all these wonderful character actors, Ray Walston and um, uh, the, the crew. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Harold Gould. If Harold Gould was the- Harold was, Gould, uh, yes, he, yes. Was, he was, yeah. Uh, Kid Twist, Kid Twist. Kid Twist. Um, yeah. they're, they're such the, 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 the first of all, I have Eileen, Eileen Brennan and uh, Eileen Brennan. There were a lot right. of Jack Kehoe. Jack Kehoe as uh, Eerie. Yeah. Um, Eerie Kid, yeah. Eerie Kid. Uh, there's just so many interesting moments. Now, I have to ask you, since it's such a, a, an iconic move in the whole movie, that whenever the guys see each other, they do a little thing with their nose. Was that in your yeah. That was in the script. It's a, and it's a thing that confident, confidence men did. It was called the office. When you did this, you were giving them the office, and it was just, it was just a sign that they, that they saw you, they knew what was in play, and they were ready to go. Now, um, there, there's times when I would love to have been a fly on the wall during the making of the movie. Since most of it was shot in L.A., did the did the team allow you to be on the set? They did. Um, I missed. They went to Chicago for about 10 days. Um, they shot the L and some of that other stuff, the action stuff, some action stuff in Chicago and the bank uh, or the, you know, the, the bank where uh, uh, you know, uh, God, I'm forgetting the names of my own characters, but uh, you know, uh, oh, the bank you know, the where hotel, they go. the whole yeah. teller scene, right? Um, and uh, and you know, with Newman sitting there and just the people going by him, and he just giving them all the office. Um, but I didn't see, I didn't see a lot of the end of it because there was a writer's strike that year. Oh. And I couldn't cross. I couldn't cross the picket line. So I was able to see. I was able to see some of it, but not all of it. Do you, Do you have some memories of being on the set? Like I'm going to go back to. Uh, I'm going to go back to Mr. Newman. What are your memories of Paul Newman? Well, Paul was. Um, he was. He was he was he was a sensational person in every way. Uh, you know, um, it was funny because when we were rehearsing at Universal, uh, George Hill came to me and said, "Look, David, I don't want you talking to Paul about the script because Paul loves to talk to the writer about the script." And then he comes to me and he talks to me about all these ideas he got from talking to the writer, and he said, "It's all just Paul." going through his process because he knows what he's going to do. He knows, he knows how he's going to play this. So just, you know, don't contribute to my, to, <laughs> don't contribute to my problems by giving him a bunch of ideas. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, how am I going to do this? Huh? So every time I saw Paul in the distance coming toward me, I, I dart off behind him. <laughs> You know, behind a dumpster or something and hide. I just kept trying not to run into him because I didn't know if he came. If Paul Newman says to you, you know, Dave, I want to talk to you about the script. How do I say, no, Paul, I can't talk to you about that. I mean, he's Paul Newman and I'm nobody. I mean, how can I say that to him? So, so I was sitting there one day and I was, I was 
I was walking toward George and Henry Bumstead, who, who was the production designer, and they were talking about something. And before I got to them, these two arms came around me from the back. And I heard this voice say, gotcha. And I could tell right away it was Newman because there's no mistaking that voice. So I turned around and Paul said, Dave, you know, you've been avoiding me, haven't you? And I said, no, Paul, why would I do that? Why would I avoid you? You're the star and I'm just starting out here. Why would I avoid you? And he said, because George told you to, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, what do I say now? I either give up George, who, and George at that point had noticed that Paul and I were talking, and he looked over with the George Roy Hill evil eye, which is one of the best evil eyes I've ever encountered. And and Paul said to me, look, Dave, here's what we're going to do. You and I are just going to talk. I don't care what it's about. It can be, it can be about groceries. It can be about baseball. It, you know, uh, I don't care. It could it can be about, you know, about soap. I don't I don't care. I just want George to see us talking because it'll drive him nuts. So <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, I'm screwed because if I don't talk to Newman, I'm I'm a jerk. If I do talk to him, George is going to kill me. So I decided, OK, I'll just talk to him. And we started talking and, you know, we were talking. We, we ended up talking about car racing because Paul was very interested in car racing, always was his whole life. And so we started talking about racing and he, and while we're doing that, George sort of sauntered over to us and um, came over and said, hey, so what are you two talking about? And Paul said, George, David has such great ideas about what to do with this character. I just can't wait to talk to you about them. And I thought, <laughs> oh my God, Paul, Paul is just throwing me under the bus. I'm going to be fired <laughs> off the movie. Uh, neither one of the, you know, George will never speak to me again. Um, and then, then, then Newman just started to laugh because that's the way he was. He, he really enjoyed making movies. And he just said, George, I know what you're doing and stop. Why are you doing this? I mean, okay, I get it. I'm not going to talk to you about the character. I've talked, I've, I've, I've been working on it, actually. And George said, oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, you know, you know, I learned a lot from Paul. And, and one of the things I learned was he said, look, making movies is hard. It's hard work. And you've got to find ways to make it fun. You've got to find ways to enjoy it or you won't last in this business. It's just... It's just to, you know, making movies can get to be a grind. So you got to make it fun. And he made it fun. He made it fun all the time. It was always good to see him. It was always good to talk to him. He was always in a good mood. He always, you know, he always loosened you up. Um, it was great. He was he was one of the, the best men I've ever met in terms of just what you want to be as a man. As a role model for men, you can't get any better than Paul Newman just remarkable guy obviously incredibly generous no ego at all it was a huge movie star didn't care about any of that actually redford didn't care much about that either and they were two of the biggest you could ever be and so i just i always felt like um 
you know, uh, I was I was fortunate to have those two people. Now, how how did um, how would you contrast Redford? Um, well, Bob was you know Bob was he was he was fun too. He was a little more he was a little more serious when he came to the set than Paul. Paul was very much into being. He would do the lines, the first couple takes, and and Bob Bob came in really prepared with what he wanted to do, and they would do the lines, the first couple of takes, and then the next, after that, Paul would start to improvise stuff, and it drove both George and and Bob a little crazy because they're saying. Uh, Paul, you're not, I, that's not really the a, a valid response to the line I just gave you. <laughs> and, but Paul just liked to have fun with it. And he said, you know, maybe I'll do something that you want to use, George. And George said, probably not, Paul, but, you know, I'm going to give you two more of these. And then we're going to, and then if I haven't gotten what I want, we're going to go back to the lines. And Paul was fine with that. He was fine with that. And then they went back to it. But but Paul loved he loved improvisation. He just and he he really saved his. Uh, I remember there was a time when uh, he and Robert Shaw were rehearsing, and they were rehearsing a scene. They were rehearsing the scene, uh, the fairly you know the the the, the uh, poker scene, and which is uh, which is such a highlight of the film. It's such a wonderful scene. Yeah, it's really probably the most memorable scene in the movie. Um, and uh, they were rehearsing, and Shaw, who was a, a stage actor, he was just filling the room with his performance. And, and Newman was kind of, you know, there wasn't a lot of energy, there wasn't a lot of volume. It was just kind of... Um, he was just kind of going through the motions. And I I went to George and I said, George, you know, I'm concerned. I, I just watched this, this rehearsal between Bob and, and Paul. And he was Bob was blowing Paul away. I, I I don't know if Paul's really got the character yet. And uh, George Roy Hill looked at me like I was the dumbest human being on earth and said, David wait till we turn the camera on. <laughs> and of course, the first day we turned the camera on, Paul, there he was, Paul Newman, movie star, Henry Gondorf to the max. I mean, you know, I he mean, just he, didn't he, ever he, get to performance level. He never was interested in performance level while rehearsing. And, 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 and Robert Shaw was because, you know, he came from the stage. I mean, Paul of uh, Gondorf blows his nose into his into his tie. I mean, it was, <laughs> and he, it was such a one. Now that scene, as you point out, is the heart of the movie. Was that a tough scene to come without all the machinations, or was that one that, from your research, you knew how to fix the deck, that kind of thing? Well, I had heard. I I, I knew from my research that sometimes a good place to play marks was on a moving train because there was no law enforcement around uh, and you didn't need at least a way to set them up 
uh, and you would pay off the conductor on the train. You'd give him a C note. Uh, and, you know, that was that was a way to sort of get a relationship going with them, even if it was a, a hostile relationship. So that when they get roped into the, the what they called the store or the place where they actually played the con into the, the false betting parlor, there's already there's already uh, there's already some bad blood between the two characters, which the con man can use to get to get the uh, to get the mark to try to ruin it. Um, so, I thought, I thought yeah. it was, I was I was reading that um, one of um, Lonergan's little you know bits is that he limps. But I also I was also surprised to find that the reason he limps is he got hurt in some kind of accident. Yes, he had a he had a he kind of he kind of had an ankle he had a big uh, high ankle sprain actually, and so he came in limping and Paul just said, uh, "Not Paul, but uh, George just said, well, let's use it. It's kind of a good character thing." And actually, if you notice during the movie, Redford, he always has his thumb. He has his thumb like this a lot. And a lot of people thought he was doing a James Cagney homage. And no, he wasn't. He actually had a broken thumb from a skiing accident. So both both Redford and and Bob Shaw were injured during the movie. And, and you know, Redford... People look at that as a, another character thing from Redford, but he actually could not bend that thumb down. And when he was off stage, he put it into cast. The idea, so, the, the idea of using the the injury. I, I was doing a commentary track recently on a John Frankenheimer film. You probably know called The Train with Burt yes, Lancaster. Yes, one of it, one of one of his best movies and one of his not necessarily his most well known movie, Burt Lancaster. Yeah, and Burt Lancaster had an accident on that movie, and yeah. uh, they had to work it in that he gets shot to give him that mm -hmm. limp as well. So that is very interesting. Right. Um, we didn't have to. We didn't have to work it in. It just sort of. It just sort of became part of the character. Sure. What was your impression of Shaw? Uh, otherwise, uh, obviously, very impressed to be around. I would think. Oh yes, he was. Um, you know, I was. I was. You know, I was amazed by all of these, of all of these guys. They were all uh, consummate actors. I mean, really the best of the best. And, you know, being around them just as people and, you know, regular guys and like to have fun, like to have a, like to have a beer or two, you know. Uh, although Redford didn't drink much, but, but, but Newman liked to have some, to drink some beer and so did Shaw. And, uh, you know, they're just sort of regular guys, and then they get on in front of the camera, and they're these these amazing other people. And uh, I had not been around that much, except I, I had left the set of uh, of uh, Steel Yard Blues, Steel Yard Blues, because I just, you know, they were changing everything, and and I, I just gave up after a while. I said they're not making the movie I wrote, so I'm just gonna, I might as well leave because they're not paying any attention to what I what I did. But this, you know, I was you know uh, I was much more invested, and I 
And it was really a drag when I, I couldn't go to the set anymore. I mean, I, I believed in what the writer's school was doing. And, I, you know, I, I didn't want to cross the picket line. But uh, I would have loved to see some of these scenes uh, in person because, you know, just watching watching really great actors work in person is it's just thrilling. Um, uh, it's David. Yeah. When George Roy Hill would run dailies, would he invite you to the dailies? No, um, George. the The actors didn't go to the dailies either. George liked to watch the dailies himself, but one of the reasons he didn't ask me was the first week he shot that opening scene and I didn't think it was very good. I thought they, the, you know, the acting wasn't quite where it should be. And, and I went and said it to George and, and he was pissed that I went and said that to him and he banned me for this from the set for a week, which was a week during which he reshot that whole scene. <laughs> <laughs> he felt the same way too, but he didn't want some rookie like me telling him that. So he felt like, you know, we're, we, we just haven't hit our stride yet. So I'm going to start, I'm going to shoot that again. And he shot it again. And obviously it was much better, but you know, I was banned from the set for the week that he shot that. And that was just George. And, but George didn't like the actors. He didn't like the actors or the writers looking at the dailies because he didn't like people second guessing him. Um, and it wasn't that he, you know, it wasn't that he take, he couldn't take criticism. He would take it from Redford and Newman because he was friends with them and he'd done a big movie with them. Although they very seldom gave it to them, to him because George was as intimidating as, uh, it's funny, as intimidating as, as Bob and, and Paul were to most people. George was a much more intimidating guy. He was a tough son of a gun, and he did not he did not suffer what he considered to be fools. And so he he didn't want the actors coming in and saying, "Why did you use that take? I thought it was better in this take." He just didn't want that, and they respected that. They trusted him to give to put together the best performance their best performance and you know um he had earned that right so um yeah no i didn't I, go to dailies either i read somewhere and maybe this is just one of those myths that the studio before the movie was shot they were a little concerned that redford and and um uh, newman were so simpatico that when they go, then they have some problems that it wouldn't work in the movie, but that doesn't seem to be the case. No, I, well, you know, that, that the studio may have said that at some point, but I never heard that. Uh, you know, it never got, got down to my level. <laughs> and in, in reality, the characters are very friendly with one another till the they very are, end. They are, they are, you know. Now, and Now, without giving away anything for the people who have not seen the sting, the elaborate sting at the end of the movie is just so beautifully done. Did they film that as written or were there some changes that had to be made? No, they filmed that as written. Um, and it's it's not that, you know, George hadn't gone over every scene and said, why is it? You know, he'd ask me questions like, why is he saying this right now? 
And I was like, uh, well, I thought it was a good idea when I was writing it. I, you know, it seemed like, you know, part of the, part of the, uh, you know, the flow of the conversation. And he would press me. He would press me, and it was good because I learned a lot from it. But I also, it was, it was him making sure, as as I said before, that the actors could not ask him something he did not have an answer for. He never wanted to be in that position. He wanted to understand why they were doing and saying everything they did. Um, and, and he did. And, um, you know, he did a great job of shooting the ending. I, I just think the way he shot it and cut it was, was great. And, uh, uh, but he didn't really change much from the script. I mean, the script was, was like I said, it, of all the scripts I've ever written and ever had filmed, there was less, there was less changes made uh, in the script than any other experience I've had. I, I was kind of spoiled after that. I kind of thought, well, uh, this is the way they make movies. You, you, know, you turn it into the producers. They send it to to Redford. It goes to the the, the big director and goes to Newman and Bob Shaw. And two weeks later, you're it's green lit. And I thought, you know, yeah, that that was it was I was a little spoiled after that. I, I I paid my dues more after that movie than I did before. One of the characters we haven't mentioned who's throughout the movie also is an example of having you writing him a nice character was Charles Durning and Snyder. Yeah. Uh, Snyder. He's, yeah. he's, a, he's a very cool character. Yeah. And you, I, I sort of needed that, that character who's a bridge from Hooker's former life to his new life. Right. And so, so you believe it when the whole thing with pole capsons, with Agent Polk, the FBI agent. Right, Dana Elkar, who's very credible. Yeah, Dana Elkar was great in that. And uh, so, so the movie, you know, as you know, uh, the whole bank teller thing was with Ray Walston, of course. Oh, Ray Walston! Uh, I, I got a chance to work with Ray Walston up in Canada in one of his last films, a bicycle racing movie called Rad. And yeah. Walston is one of the great character actors, and. He really was. And, when, they, and, when they go into the bank guy's office and I start painting the wall and it's just so clever <laughs> and fun. That yeah, was that fun. was that that I I uh that was something that I had never heard of confidence man do, but uh I I made that up. But um uh, the 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 scene where Walston is reading the race results as they're coming in over the ticker. And then at the end, he 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 just breaks down and he's out of breath and the whole thing. That was real. Yeah, he did that, you know, that that wasn't in the script. He just- <laughs> He just wore him out. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, I mean, you know, he may have just done it because he felt it was right for the character. And, you know, that's just the kind, when these great character actors, they do these things. They do these little things that just make a, a whole lot of difference in the feeling of a movie. It mentioned somewhere that uh, you used real horse names for the races, that you pulled them out of the, the races at the time. So Lucky Dan, which plays an important part in the ending, that was a real horse. That was a real horse at the time, although, you know, sometimes I would make up other names to fill out the field. Uh 
But yeah, I, I did a lot of research on horses from the time and not necessarily the best horses. Uh, you know, I didn't use like War Admiral or Sea Biscuit or something like that. Uh, well, it's funny because when those those races, those races, you know, would have been common knowledge where they finished. But it's, uh, it's funny because Eileen Brennan is telling Henry to to work on the carousel, and she says Man of War threw a kid the other night. So it's probably the only yeah. time you mentioned um, one of the majors. So yeah, sting, a real racehorse that somebody would know. The sting from that era. The sting is people got blown away. People just got blown away with it. It uh, scores, I think, eleven Oscar nominations, wins seven. Uh, tell us a little bit about Oscar night for you. I bet that was quite thrilling. Well, it was thrilling, except I, like I say, I was I was a rookie in the business at that time. And I remember riding in the limousine to the Oscars and our big competition was the Exorcist. And the Exorcist had, had lines around the block for, for weeks. And, and a lot of the press coverage was concentrated on the exorcist and you know her her head turning around and the vomiting the pea soup and the whole thing <laughs> and i felt like we didn't have really the media presence that they did and although we had our box office numbers i later learned because i wasn't following the box office week to week because it wasn't at that time the box office wasn't printed in the paper every week so i really didn't know what it was making i honestly didn't but you know we'd make ten million a week, and we did we do that for like eight straight weeks. In those days, you could do that; it wouldn't fall off thirty percent from the first week. So driving to it, I just thought, you know, Julie was saying, "I think we're going to win. I really think we're going to win." And I said, well, "Are you kidding? I, 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 first of all, why would they vote for me? Nobody. I don't even know anybody." In this business nobody in the academy knows me why would they vote for me and she said that david they don't vote for the person they vote for the for the for the movie and the what they thought you did i thought oh okay well i still don't think we'll win <laughs> so uh they were they were all up and i was just kind of i was just i, I was excited but i was afraid to be too I didn't want to jinx anything. I was afraid to be too upbeat because, you know, I, again, I was I was a I was a complete newbie, and uh, I didn't want to be a fool, you know, uh, assuming things were going to happen that that uh, I, I had no reason to assume. So when I won, I was completely shocked, and I hadn't I hadn't prepared anything to say. So when I got up there, I was, I was a little bit nervous. And I, I think, I haven't watched it in many years, but I think I forgot to thank Redford and Newman. <laughs> and I vowed if I ever won another Academy Award that I would, the first thing I would do is thank Redford and Newman for the sting and then thank whoever I had to thank <laughs> for the other movie. I got nominated again, but I, but I, I, I haven't ever won again. Were Redford and Newman at your table? Uh, no. Um, Redford, um, let me think. Um, 
they, you know, at the Academy Awards, you're not at tables. Oh, that's right. It's your it's, it's auditorium, auditorium, right? So they they Redford and Newman were not in the same row that I was in, but I, I saw them afterwards. I saw George and 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 Bob and Paul both both of them, and it was it was it was good fun, you know. And the after party was that was kind of kind of really good fun. We I, I went to. Not I went to the yeah, after sorry. party at the academy. Uh, Bob and uh, George and Paul went to their own party, and then I joined them later. Okay, so I have to ask you, where is the Oscar sitting right now? The Oscar sitting right now. Um, the Oscar is actually, uh, this is strange because I, <laughs> uh, my my wife and I are are living in an Airbnb right now because we're looking for a new house. Right. And so we packed up all our stuff and I packed the Oscar and it's in storage. So it's not actually with me right now because first of all, we're right next to the ocean. And one of the reasons I didn't want to bring it here was because the ocean air tarnishes it because I lived at the beach once before and it just, you know, it it played havoc with the with the whole gold plate uh, on the Oscars, and I had to have it replated. And I didn't want to have to go back to the Academy again and say, "Guess what? I need to have it replated again." So I I put it in storage, so I don't have it with me right now, or other or else I would I would show it to you. Sure, sure, of course. I well, don't I don't on, have it. On behalf of everyone who's seen the sting many, many times, including myself, I just want to thank you for just such a wonderful story. Just a wonderful story. Well, thank you. I, you know, I I worked a lot. It took me a year to write it. I I wrote a first draft that took six months, and I wasn't happy with it because I wanted to, I wanted to write something where it conned the audience as well. So that they couldn't say after they watched it, well, I would have never fallen for something like that. Um, I it, took me another, it took me another six months to get that done. So it was a lot of work. And there were days when I confused myself. I was so confused about, okay, now can I do this? Because I did this over here, did this over here, you know, but uh, I got, I got through it. It was, it was one of the hardest scripts to write I've ever written uh, just because it was such a puzzle. And I had to make sure I wasn't cheating on stuff, you know, that I wasn't leading the audience uh, on with something that the confidence men wouldn't do because they were in on it. Sure, sure. You know, well, so um, uh, it was, in retrospect, it was fun. But while I was doing it, God, it was just, it was hard, hard work. And, but I, I was so, I was so gratified by the, the response that people had to it. I remember being at a premiere of it. Uh, I was in Long Beach. We we're watching the movie and I, I won't give away the ending, but one of the women, a uh, woman sitting in front of me had a real problem with the ending until she didn't. And uh, she said, God, I hate it when they do this in movies. And uh, and she, she looked around at me and she said, don't you? And I said, don't worry, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> it's uh, she, it, it, it's, uh, it's scary sometimes. And then it was, and then she looked at me like, "How did you know that?" I said, "I don't know. I just had a feeling." <laughs> 
Well, we have been listening to Academy Award winning screenwriter. Of course, you know, you, you're no longer for the last 50 years. You're not just David S. Ward. You are Academy Award winning David S. Ward, which is a rare rank. Well, yeah, I mean, I was I was very fortunate to be one of the few people who who gets who gets that honor. Uh, you know, you uh, I I'll never forget it. I'm I'll, I'll always be grateful. Um but uh, yeah, I you know I I don't think of myself that way. I just think of myself as David Ward. No, we know that. Trying I'm to get just... his next script done. <laughs> sure, sure. No, of course, and hopefully they'll be the one we're planning to work on together. The uh, yes, that would story be of Audie Murphy, which I think will be a great great project. Uh, we've been listening to David S. Ward on Saturday Night Movies. I'm your host Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to our channel. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple, we're on Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Stephen J. Rubin, Saturday Night at the Movies. That's J-A-Y. David, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. It was great. Really had fun, you know, thinking about it again. That's one of my fondest memories. Fabulous. Uh, hang on one second here. Um, just trying to find, here we go.